Hi and welcome to a new episode of the State of the Net podcast. I'm Paolo Valdemarin. And I'm Ewan Semple. And we must apologize because you will get this episode one week late. Now, last week, actually, we did record an episode, but then we had a little problem with one of our microphones and uh, we decided not to release the episode because it didn't sound very nice. Well, that's, that's very kind of you, Paolo, to say one of our microphones. It was my microphone. And, you know, as a, a highly trained former BBC sound engineer, uh, I should take the blame. It was my microphone. Goodness knows what was going wrong with it, but it was. Uh, but we were just chatting before we started recording. This time, you know whether we should have just put it out and made an apology at the beginning. And you know, I've heard some really dire uh, audio recordings in podcasts, but they've got out because you know in those circumstances, it's almost always because there's a guest, and getting the guest again would be difficult. But um, you know, I think there is that, that temptation to. Well, from my perspective, over try to overproduce podcasts. Uh, but from what you were saying, the degradation of the, the sound got worse towards the end. So it would have been just annoying, to, even more annoying to listen to. Well, I might, I must say, it, I, as a coming from a several generation of uh, hi-fi enthusiasts and kind of audiophiles, I couldn't have put that out. I mean, it was just, <laughs> I, I couldn't. Well, we used, to, we used to joke about it at, at the World Service because we spent a long time and, and put a lot of effort and skill into trying to make things sound good and then mangled them down a shortwave signal that was listened to on small transistors in deserts, you know, and it always seemed a bit odd that we took all that time. Um, and certainly because I spent my working day listening to, you know, incredibly impressive and expensive uh, loudspeakers, I tended not to get into audio file stuff at home because, you know, the more money you spend on that, the more likely you are to hear the mistakes that I was making at the front end. Um, but yeah, and, and well, we also we also knew that if there's enough rough edges in an audio recording, even if people don't know what the cause is, it eventually just gets distracting or annoying, or they just have less pleasure from listening to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is interesting the fact that we are. I mean, podcasting has been around forever, but uh, it is really taking, it has been taking off in the last few years and mm -hmm. you have a lot of uh, production these days. And uh, I must say that most of what I'm listening to, the quality is actually pretty good. And uh, it's so much easier nowadays, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because I mean, you can buy the, you can buy a pretty decent microphone, and you have a full blown recording studio. Well, and you don't phone. even need um, the studio in that sense. Because I was just talking to, I think our mutual friend uh, Laurent, who does a, a, a podcast and television stuff as well. He was suggesting that uh, as I embark on my new career as a as a lorry driver. Um, I'm just trying to remember whether we've talked about that in the podcast or whether we did it last week and people won't know what the hell I'm going on about. But anyway, uh, I'm about to embark on, a, on a, a, an additional career as a lorry driver. And Laurent was saying that, you know, that would be great uh, material for, I, I, I certainly a blog, which I had anticipated doing, but also a podcast. And he now has uh, a portable set of kit that he, he's able to use wherever he is and just grab people and, and interview them. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look into the possibilities of doing that. So you don't even need uh, a fixed space in order to be able to do it these days. 
Oh no! I mean, as uh, as I demonstrated for the last couple of episodes, you could just <laughs> in the cupboard. You know, I I came out of the closet this week <laughs> because I am back in London and I'm not recording from my closet, from my walk-in closet in in Italy. But uh, yeah, you can you can you can very easily do that. I, there there is something that I've been thinking about uh, recently. I'm still going through the book about uh, Silicon Valley and uh, how at the beginning of a revolution, and in the, in the case of the history of Silicon Valley, there are two. There is first the PC and then the internet. All the principles are essentially amateurs because there isn't an established discipline. So all those who were creating the first computers were just figuring things out. There were no computer yeah. experts yeah. and uh, and the same at the beginning of the of the web as we know it uh, i mean that part i was more active into you know you would just uh, view source of web pages and figure out how to do them you wouldn't study how to do that you would yeah. just uh, you would just figure it out you couldn't do a degree in social media in those days paolo no, you can't. But you know, it is true that I'm I'm working on the production of digital platforms today, and it's a it is a much much more complicated thing. And uh, you know, no one of us would think of uh, starting a company producing computers or smartphones because they have become very very complicated things. So you know, as a product mature, the level of complexity increases, and you have more and more specialization. You need to be a bigger and bigger company to be able to, to tackle that kind of problems. Yes, but, and this totally relates to a conversation I had about organisations and what I call the perils of professionalism. And this is the, the growth of expertise in a particular subject, say HR or communications or whatever, that, that means it ends up developing its own norms and its own processes and its own uh, dogma. Uh, for want of a better word, that then makes it cut adrift from the original purpose for which it was intended and it becomes an end in itself. And that certainly worries me about <clears throat> social media, that it's it's got turned into a thing and a thing that people feel they need to be experts in or charge lots of money for or whatever. Whereas actually it's really still, for me, about people having online conversations about interesting topics. And... You know, I think the same is true of the podcasting thing, that it can become <clears throat> much higher end and more complex, but it would be good if it retained some of its original uh, authenticity. It is actually where I was sort of heading on, you know, on something like podcasting. I mean, how complicated can you make it? <laughs> I mean, really, it, it will always be about somebody sitting in front of a microphone or maybe, maybe of a camera and recording something and then posting it. I mean, it's... Uh, well, but you see, well, but you see, this is also part of why I've sort of gone off listening to BBC podcasts because, well, I never really listened to them at all, but <clears throat> they're, they're, to my eyes, ears, <laughs> overproduced. You know, and there's this intermediary, this professional broadcaster who's sort of getting between me and the subject. And they're not conversational like the podcast that I like listening to. So um, even if the technology doesn't get complicated, you can overcomplicate the process. And, you know, we've had this discussion even about editing the podcasts afterwards. When I did the podcast with Megan Murray, uh, we didn't edit them, basically. We, we just... If we got stuck or if we stumbled, we just commented on that and moved on. 
and we tried really hard not to leave too many uh, long gaps as we thought about stuff. Um, but we basically just recorded it as live. So, you know, again, it's just that balancing act and, and you know, having spent much of my career in radio de-umming inarticulate presenters, uh, I know it can get... I just paused before I said that. I know it can get irritating. <laughs> I won't edit this, pause, I promise. <laughs> but in any case, I think that it is the, interesting how technology evolves. The, uh, yes, it is true. I, I think that it is true to be aware and beware of professionalism when it essentially it's just people profiting from complexity. Yes, yes, um, yes. I, I mean, I guess the point is no one is suggesting that you don't need to be a huge, you don't need to have a huge collection of professionals to build an iPhone. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's not something it's not that a hobbyist. the two no. of us, <laughs> it's not the time that two of us, let's meet next week and build one. No. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it has become... 40 years ago we could have met next week next weekend and built a computer we could have we could have built bought a kit and built a computer well you still come with a raspberry pi yes but it's not an iphone (laughs) (laughs) you you can still you can still build some very basic visitors absolutely uh but now we have iphones and we are we you know, you walk around with an iPhone, not with a Raspberry Pi. So, so th- this kind of relates to the whole thing. thing about teaching kids coding, doesn't it? Because part of me thinks it's a good thing that they get their heads around the, the, the basics of what's being delivered through their phones. But equally, I also know that as we move forward, less and less people will actually have to have hands-on experience of code as such. There'll be intermediate apps that do much of it for us. And... Um, but then if that does become the case, I worry that we don't remember... It's a bit like photography. Photography's become so easy that people don't need to necessarily understand the principles of, of taking a, a film a camera photograph, you know? Well, I mean, okay. From one point of view, I think that the, the most useful thing about teaching kids to code is that uh, you learn how the logic of a computer works and that will be true whatever you will do with a computer i mean if you have some basic understanding of how you create software even if it's really basic you have a completely different approach to software that if you don't i mean there are even simpler i i always think that my first introduction to logic was when my father taught me how to how how our home hi-fi system worked you know what was connected to what what the cables were how did you test this how you test Mm -hmm. that and you know it's very basic logic is basically the sound goes from here to there from there to there from there to there gets amplified and then you go to the speakers and then you hear it out loud but the concept of learning that there is a logic connection and if you want to figure out what is wrong you test this and you test that and you test that is a it's a huge lesson yeah. and that is applicable to whatever you do oh, i was going to say not just computing since we i spoke yesterday to uh, david weinberger and we got into the issues around the ethics of ai and uh, machine learning and you know my constant theme of the ideology of algorithms and he made an interesting point, and it's related to this one we've just been talking about, about computing, that up to a point, it's the out, well, it is the outcome that matters. And 
his point with the AI was, in a way, rather than fretting about the biases or the uh, ways in which the code is constructed and the motives of those who construct it, if the outcome is a positive one, and that's a very big question, what you mean by positive is a very movable feast, but if the consensus is that the outcome of the tool, the software, or the system is one that moves humanity forwards, then that's that's what matters, rather than the way it was constructed. And I suppose it's similar to the argument about computing. Well, I guess, it, I mean, okay, I'm just hearing a very a tiny slice of the conversation. I think that uh, the reason why you need to understand how the system works and not just to look at the outcome is that the, if the outcome is not good, you need to fix the system somehow. So knowing how it works, yeah, would that be was useful. that was my pushback. And you know, but the thing is, you know, David's just thought about this an awful lot, and he was making it. And I'm sure, I hope I'm not paraphrasing him unfairly. Um, and there was certainly, to me, sense in the argument because it was really around the fact that we we're going to struggle to keep up. You know, even even when you said a moment ago that computers to some extent will always work the same way. I'm not sure they will. You know, once once AI and, and, and systems that are self-learning start to, you know, we, we tend to anthropomorphize this stuff and assume that it will be intelligent in the same way as we are. It may not be, and it may it may design things totally differently with different principles and you know uh, I mean look, I mean I, I was just I was referring to some basic situations like that you know, concept like to the same type of if to action, you always have the same type of reaction mm-hmm. when you deal with a computer. So I hope that even once our operating system will be turned completely in AIs, they will, you know, you sw- you will switch on the computer that will come on every time. It's not like that. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't, based on how the AI feel that day. I hope. Well, I mean, I, I'm. Not sure we will sit in front of a computer that we expect to turn on. Oh, or we will sit inside a computer. Or have it or embedded we'll, in us. Uh, or, let, you know, yeah. Let's, let, let's say that uh, getting some kind of predictable outcome from a machine is something that, at least for now, is still true. Uh, yes, it's, it might not always be. Can you imagine smart, moody devices that sometimes it works sometimes they don't just because they don't want to well that's that's how i many people i know perceive their computers currently it's a it's a personal battle for many of them but yeah, yeah <clears throat> they take it personally it's not it's not that it's not working it's not working too that's many. right it's deliberately making my life miserable but well but the, the other thing that was really interesting in that conversation we were talking he, he was saying that um if you throw a bunch of photographs at at AI and and you know they're increasingly doing this without pre-learning. They're not sort of teaching the AI in advance. They're throwing a lot of stuff at it and asking for a, a, an outcome of whatever sort. And he was saying that they've begun to that when you do that, the, the AI starts to identify edges in photographs, which he was finding philosophically interesting because, like me, he had assumed or begun to wonder whether the whole idea of boundaries, borders whatever was a, a, an aspect of the human brain and our desire to label things and to have a definition of me or you or an edge to that building rather than just some sort of grey mush of atomic energy. But the computers 
were ending up in a similar position where they were identifying edges. And so we were sort of just wondering whether, is that because humans, to, at some level, even at a deep level, program the computers so it's likely to see, notice, identify the sorts of things that we do? Or is it the fact that the photographs that it has been fed will have been taken by people who tend to like clear edges? You know, you don't tend to, as David said, you don't tend to take many pictures of fog. Um, but, you know, it's just, again, it's that really interesting junction we're at where it may not end up mimicking our sense of our sort of intelligence and our sense of priorities and and may begin to outstrip us or and it, it might be even more surprising it might mimic our intelligence because it would be a form of life yes and maybe all forms of life tend to, like, mm, you know, any mm. form of life will probably try to find edges because it's a useful thing to notice. Basically, when you when you learn to see, being able to see the edge of the cliff is useful. Yes. And, and if you think uh, it's not just humans, all form of life identify edges to some degree. That's true, well, isn't it? Well, well I yeah. I can't, <clears throat> I can't really speak for viruses and other... <laughs> Kind of, but let's say that probably we can we we can assume that many forms of life, life. So, what is interesting is that are we creating a new form of life? And if we are, will this new type of life just start behaving and becoming what all other forms of life are, and or at least known forms of life in the universe? You know, science fiction. I'm not saying that uh, all aliens. Uh, well, actually, breathe air, speak English, like in Star Trek. But, uh, but you know, you there, there might there are many theories uh, around some type of common traits in carbon-based uh, yeah. uh, life, forms of life. Now, I wonder if a silicon-based form of life might actually somehow go along. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, you know, you talked earlier about the original. Uh, pioneers in computing and their Silicon Valley mentality and the the optimism of it and the fact that we have this instinct, desire to, to make things better um, <clears throat> which in some ways has to be preceded by the assumption that they're not right as they are and you know that idea that evolution is on is on a linear path to somewhere better than where it's been may not be true um, and that again might be interesting you know the, the idea that what we value and what we see as priorities even though and I get totally what you're saying about there may be some elements of carbon based life that are fundamental that every bit of life on the planet including artificial life ends up following um but we also have layered that with all sorts of stories, you know, the, the myths around religions and the and the the feeling that we need to do something about feeling so miserable much of the time, you know, um, rather than just accepting being miserable and seeing it as part of life and that you wouldn't know when you were happy if you weren't miserable some of the time. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, beforehand we were talking about uh, fake news and the degree to which we've made up stories since man has told stories and, and, you know, 
absolute factual bottom line truth is a very movable feast. Even 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 when you have factual truth, it, it gets presented in different ways depending on your perspective. And you know, again, I've just this morning posted a blog post quoting Yogi Berra's great phrase that whenever you come to a fork in the path, take it. And it's the idea that whichever direction we head in or whichever decision we make, it's how we respond to what happens next that will determine whether it was a good or a bad decision. And that is an interesting one to think about in terms of technology and and whether it retains that level of adaptability and uh, accepting consequences rather than fighting consequences. I just remembered something. That I, I, actually, I don't remember where I read this, but um, the the this whole idea that we have today that we're kind of striving for some better future and uh, maybe we're struggling with this a little bit at the moment but i mean for several for the last few hundred years we have been waiting for a better future basically tomorrow is better than yesterday and it's always the case and it has been the case i mean humanity has grown and and changed dramatically in the last few hundred years but uh, historically this was not always true i mean throughout the middle ages there was this idea that the past was much better than the present Mm -hmm. That the old days were well, much better. There are some people around who vote for things like Brexit who think the same way. But yes, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but uh, but uh, but actually, even in Roman times, I mean, there was this uh, this concept that uh, there was a there was a glorious past, and now we need to suffer. Yes. which uh, which is completely different today. Yes. Because I mean, even with the Brexiteers. Uh, there is still they're still doing it because they're expecting tomorrow to be better. Yes. Uh, yes. It probably won't, but uh, <laughs> just a different concept but, of but, better. <laughs> yes. but, but, well, I, I also probably it depends at, at what uh, at what uh, what is the the scale you're using yes. in the sense that uh, exactly. if we look at the pla- if we look at planet Earth tomorrow will probably be better for a lot of people than. Probably for a minority living in the Western world tomorrow. Basically, right now we're clinging on today, hoping that tomorrow is going to be like today. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, this is, this is really interesting because this this is what worries me about technology that we are we are inev- inevitably encoding even one group's perception of what better is into the systems. And, you know, if you look at it on a global scale, as you just sort of took us in that direction, you know, the East has had a very different idea of what better is than the West for several hundred, you know, if not thousands of years. And you can almost see this ideological difference between what China sees as ideal and what the West sees as ideal. And, you know, if, if our technology is beginning to outstrip us and is as in, is imbued with one or other of those value systems. Um, it's interesting. Well, you know, it's uh, as far as AI is, AI is concerned, there is a concern in the Western world that uh, China might uh, overtake or might move faster because uh, they have much easier access to data, mm-hmm. which we don't have here because we have we have concern around privacy and uh, and uh, 
all kind of ethical um, old-fashioned ideas they just yeah, yeah all fine uh, that they don't have now if it is true and it is partially true that the evolution of uh, of ai is based on having access to data they might be able to evolve faster and uh, where it is going to take the planet we don't know and it does and I hope my American friends, any American friends who are listening to this will forgive me, <clears throat> it does sort of beg the question that where we're heading now with our technology is, is a good place. And it's largely based on, oh, on, a, on American values and, and assumptions about progress and the idea... It's not like a good values of that we have here in Cambridge where we respect privacy of Facebook users. Well, yeah, but the way... Okay. Broaden that to the West. I was meaning in the sense that most of the technology is being generated in the States, I guess, still. Yeah. Um, you know, even down... Oh, did, did, you, did you read that there are something like 2,000 American newspapers that are still not visible from Europe because of GDPR? Newspapers? Yeah, right. Online, online version of newspaper. Like the LA Times, for example, oh, really? is still... They because when GDPR came in, came into effect, they they were not supporting right. it, and they just blocked access. Right. And everybody was thinking, and everybody was thinking, okay, they will just fix it. They didn't do it in time. But this has been two months went by, and they're still not visible. So there is something like two thousand news websites in uh, uh, in America that are not visible anymore from Europe because they. Do, probably they couldn't be bothered to support uh, <laughs> privacy regulations. I'm so biting my lip about whether that's a good or a bad thing, but I, I, I won't go there. But it's exactly that point. You know, what seems like a an innocuous... No, not an, you know, GDPR is not an innocuous idea, but, I, you know, that, that is an unforeseen consequence of a bit of legislation that sort of makes sense um, to one group of people in one set of circumstances. You know, it's... Uh, well, I think that this is something for all of us to think about. And uh, I actually think that this episode was slightly better than the one we recorded last week. <laughs> well, we, we're the only ones who will ever know, Paolo. So I, th- I think, I think, we, I think yeah, we can exactly. confidently so we assert can that, that. This was so much better well, than the last one. Uh, this was, uh, and if you thought this one was bad, one you should have heard the last one. <laughs> Yeah, you would definitely. You so for all of you who are listening to this now, you have no idea how lucky both, you both are. Both of you, yes. Congratulations, congratulations, and uh, as usual, please remember to recommend to all your friends to start listening to podcasts because they are an interesting thing, even if they are overproduced sometimes. <laughs> and, and and also uh, to review or. or uh, Comment on link on LinkedIn on uh, iTunes because that's quite a big. It gives it gives the yeah, podcast a boost. That. Yeah, Yep. Cool. And uh, if you want to get in touch, if you want to give us any feedback, uh, you can find us online. Uh, where are you? Ewan? I'm at youandsample.com. You can find me online on my blog, which has the URL is my family name Valdemarin. It's V A L dot E-E-M-A-R dot I-N. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, see you soon. Bye-bye.